This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of so many investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're broadcasting here out of our mothership. Uh, studio here in New York today. My guest for the hour is Gene Goldman, CIO, Director of Research at Cetera. Uh, Gene, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Thanks for coming in uh, to New York. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got to Cetera, like your career, where you know how you how you got to Cetera. Sure. Um, so I went to I went to Worcester Polytech in Worcester, Mass. Engineering School. Studied aerospace engineering, and then near the end of that. Of my, I think my end of my junior year, I decided, you know, the Cold War was ending. Those aerospace jobs really did not, ex- did not exist. So I really focused more on manufacturing engineering. And then I realized when I graduated, I didn't want to be an engineer. So I got my MBA, graduated from Northeastern, who made the uh, March Madness tournament. So I'm very excited about that. And then um, after my first job was working for a smaller broker dealer called Liberty Financial Bank Group in Boston. And then after that, I spent about 16 years at LPL Financial and a broker dealer in Boston. Boston, and then I moved to California. So I'm a Boston boy, moved all the way to California, living in Santa Monica now, working for Satara Financial. Well, that's got to be terrible weather out there. Oh, it's <laughs> tough life. Well, it, it was tough. It, it did get cold a few days ago. It got down to about 65 degrees. So. <laughs> we got you in New York. You get a little bit of the, the taste here. Thank you. Um, so the from engineering to investment management, what was the what did you bring from that, that discipline that you think you can apply mm-hmm. through your day to day? Sure. I, you know, I'm a geek. I'm a geek. You know, I love looking at analyzing numbers as much as I can. And engineering is a great way to leverage that geekiness. But I think today, the ability to look at numbers, the ability to analyze trends, to get those perspectives in terms of where numbers are going definitely helps me in my career today. And and so talk us to us about Satera, you know, what how you your the, the place in the industry, what sure your value proposition there is and sure sure we're an independent broker dealer we have about 7700 advisors all over the country um, our advisors and with that we have about 250 million of assets under advisement AUA our advisors from an independent standpoint what they tend to do is you know they've had they sometimes have experienced other why other broker dealers maybe like a wirehouse like some of the larger firms and then they realize just from a career transition that they want to own their own business and they really want to focus on what really drives drives their business from a from a um what they, their needs are. So after a while, they tend to transition to our firm where they can be a true in, independent employee affiliated with our broker dealer. 
how do you see the trend in that in the in the industry shaping there is it you know there's a lot of mm-hmm. talk about going towards fee-based business from the traditional business how wh- what are the big macro trends of of that you see at Cetera? Sure. I think definitely the big one that everyone talks about is retirement. I mean, it's it's the old pig and the python in the sense that you have more and more people retiring. Baby boomers are retiring. There's a lot of potential wealth transfer. So that's going to be big from a financial advice standpoint. I think advisors you know, the need, it's a little difficult just to go out and build your own portfolios to do your own investing. I think it makes sense for your average investor, like my mom, for example, it makes sense to have um, an advisor to navigate through these uncertainties. And there's a lot of uncertainties that we see going forward, which we can talk about later. Our 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 perspective, our, our firm really focuses on what we call the advice-centric experience. The advice-centric experience is a is a focus, is a perspective where we really focus on financial planning as the key driver of the future for investing. You know, you think about a lot of firms today, they focus on which mutual fund should you buy, mutual fund A or mutual fund B. That's great, but I think the bigger picture is, are you prepared for your future? Do you have enough financial planning in place going forward to navigate the unexpected? Retirement, your kids going to college, all those key perspectives going forward. So planning, the whole, the, the, there's a big focus on planning. Is there a big, do you guys have your own tools? Do you partner with tool providers there? How? Yeah, we ha- we have a full gamut of tools. You know, obviously technology is advancing quite dramatically. Um, we have some tools, for example, um, like facial recognition, where we have the ability to, you know, you think about today, in the world today, you go to a, another broker dealer, you fill out a questionnaire, you get a perspective in terms of, you know, how much growth do you are you are you aggressive, conservative? That's great, but we also take that and we complement that with a tool that allows us to get a, a reaction in terms of how you as a client, how you feel about like college planning, how you feel. Just it's another way it's complements your traditional questionnaire, for example. We have lots of great interesting tools that you'll see more and more coming out this summer, especially as we gear up for a national conference in August. Very good. And so when you think about that trend from planning and you're sort of overseeing research and investment management, like how are you building, thinking about what you're trying to provide on the investment side to to sync up with these that trend in the planning side? Sure. I think what we try to do is we try to provide research in three ways. So number one, it's market perspectives. So perspectives on the economy, on investing, on where the stock market will go, bond market, again, just a very overall perspective. The second way is we provide portfolio perspectives. You think about an advisor today really needs to spend a lot of time with financial planning, making those plans going forward for his or her client. So we want to provide that guidance. How much should you be in large cap growth or large cap value? How much should you be in bonds versus stocks? And the third perspective is what to actually invest in, what types of securities to populate those asset classes. Our job as a research team is to help our advisors not really worry about that investment side. Let us do that. Let us, our team of CFAs and CAIAs and MBAs, really dive in and be geeks and just analyze data. So tell us, what is your big picture worldview today? I mean, how are, how do you look at all the trends, equities and bonds? Mm-hmm. So maybe top down how you how you're looking at the world today? Sure, I think the world. You know, if you looked at it last year, obviously from December 24th, we had that really terrible day in the market. Market sold off. 
we were telling our advisors we're, we're cautiously optimistic because going into 2019, there's a lot of great opportunities in the market. Number one, you know, the concern, I think around my Christmas dinner on December 25th, my family, my mom was saying a recession is coming in 2019 and we did not see a recession in 2019 and we still don't. We can talk about that later. Number two was um, the trade war. Obviously, we believe the trade war will be resolved very soon. We can talk about that too. And then number three is that the Fed is going from being very hawkish to very dovish. So basically going from a policy of raising interest rates to pausing and maybe even cutting rates. So going into the, the, to 2019, all of these were positive drivers. And this is why you saw the S&P 500. It's up around 13% year to date. Best start since 1991. That's all great news. But now going forward, though, our question is, well, what are the new catalysts for the markets? Um, I think the market's already priced in a dovish Fed. The markets have already priced in a trade war resolution. But then there's other issues, these headwinds that we're concerned about, looking at earnings. You know, last year earnings rose 20%, about 20% year over year. Great numbers. You know, half of that was driven from tax reform. But this year earnings may be three or four percent. So clearly earnings are not going to be a big driver as they were last year. You look at some of the economic data, economic data on manufacturing is looking a little weaker. Some of the consumer data is looking a little weaker. Um, on the positive side, labor market looks really strong. I think, you know, we are near 50-year lows of unemployment. You know, our favorite statistic to look at is just simply in the labor market, are there more jobs than people looking for jobs? We've had 11 straight months of more jobs out there than people looking for jobs. Labor market is really good. The services side is very, very good. But then again, there's some things we're just watching closely, like you think about auto sales. Auto sales, lowest number of auto sales since October of 2014. That's a concerning point. Housing has been a little bit frothy. So we're not, you know, not trying to be super bears and we're not bears because we still think there's going to be a lot of momentum in the markets as the trade war gets resolved, as the Fed continues to be dovish. But we don't think there's that much more energy going forward, especially late this year as the markets start to price in a potential recession. We're talking with Gene Goldman, the Director of Research and Chief Investment Officer at Cetera Investment Management. Uh, and yeah, that view, the markets have certainly priced in a lot on all those different things. And you do question like, what is the catalyst for the next five to 10%? Because the earnings are coming down. Um, do you have a sense if there was a positive surprise, where a positive surprise could come from? Yeah, I think the positive surprises could be labor market. So you think about the consumer. The consumer, from a job perspective, consumers, jobs, you know, there are plentiful, plenty of jobs out there. So that's definitely going to help consumer spending. The concern is, will the 35% rise in oil prices, will that impact consumer spending from, you know, as, as you know, gas prices rise? That's one concern. Clearly, second of all, the Fed is not... Um, not going to raise rates this year. I mean, obviously, there's some some perspective they may raise rates once, but we're in the belief that the Fed will not raise rates this year. So that's obviously a positive too. Also, um, you look at from a debt standpoint. So everyone talks about there's so much debt out there today. And yeah, there is a lot of debt. But if you look at like debt divided by disposable income, we are near I think ten or 15, ten year lows. That's good news there. And in, even if you look at mortgage. Um, you know, mortgages divided by disposable income, that's down to 0.65 ratio. So 0.65, if you take mortgages divided by disposable income, that's the lowest since 2001. So the consumer is good. And as we all know, the consumer represents 70% of the economy. So we're positive there. Hmm. So there is some positive. And plus, you look at um, 
a lot of things have been already priced in some potential bad news, like Europe, for example. You know, we talked about Europe. Europe, there's some potential opportunities. Things are looking really bad in Europe, but a lot of that's already priced in. And so let's go back to just where in the U.S. people tend to get worried about. You used, sort of talked about recessions, not think there's going to be a recession in 2019. Mm-hmm. When you think about the big falls in the markets, they tend to be the recession-driven collapse in earnings. I mean, how do you think about what's going to tip us over? Is it just that the Fed's hiked rates eight times in the last two years, and now we're too tight? We should be at two percent instead of two and a half. You know, where where do you think we are? Yeah. So we we've looked at, uh, and that's a great question because we looked at what has caused recessions the last few recessions. I think since the end of World War II, and the most common are um, a surge in oil prices. Yes, oil is up 34%, but it's still around $59 per barrel. I think last year it was at 74 at one point. So oil is down year over year, but it has surged a little bit. Debt is always a concern. Um, we're not too concerned about debt. Everyone talks about, I think we have about $9.4 trillion of corporate debt. That's a big number. But if you look at corporate debt, and I always like tell our advisors this, listen, um, corporate CFOs were very smart. What they did back... In, in, during quantitative easing, during low interest rate policy, they did what you and I did. They re, you know, we refinanced our mortgages. They did the same thing from a debt perspective. So if you look at short-term debt divided by total debt, that ratio, and this is according to Credit Suisse, the ratio is about 0.11 or maybe 0.12 currently. If you look at the 20-year average, that ratio is about 0.22. So what this means is that they've been reducing short-term debt and increasing overall debt. They've been taking on long more debt as a way to take advantage of low interest rates. So we don't see a debt issue perspective. The areas that we would be concerned that have that could concern could trigger a recession is um, an outside shock. So the trade war goes longer than anticipated. That's something where we don't feel it will happen, but that's something we could be concerned about. Or a sharp rise in the dollar. Sharp rise in the dollar makes our exports very unattractive, and that's a concern that we would we watch carefully. Um, also, a, a political perspective. So right now, today, you know, oh, sorry, not political, a fiscal perspective. So given what's taking place in Washington, given what that fiscal stimulus, you know, given that we have a $1 trillion budget deficit, fiscal stimulus may not actually be there for, for this next year. So if we take all those macro drivers that we just <laughs> talked about, so there's how much has been priced in, you know, where we are, what are the future catalysts, you, you boil that down to an equity view that you're talking to your advisors about. Mm-hmm. How are you counseling them? You have your standard equity bond mix. Mm-hmm. Where should they be on that standard equity bond mix today, given all that macro sure. top down? Sure. Definitely from a portfolio positioning standpoint, you know, we think definitely focus on long-term investment objectives. You know, obviously markets have moved dramatically, and sometimes asset asset classes are a little bit out of whack. But we would definitely be focused on focusing, going back to your long-term objectives. So rebalancing, rebalancing. You know, if you're significantly overweight, let's say long-term, if you're a 60-40 investor, and all of a sudden, given the appreciation, the equity side, you've gone up to 70% equity and 30% fixed income, take the opportunity to rebalance back to your long-term goal. Now it's not the tame time to take on additional risk, given the fact that we are in the longest bull market ever, we are in the ninth year of an economic expansion. So now it's not the time. So we would definitely focus on long-term goals. From an investment standpoint, we like the U.S. today. You know, the U.S. has decoupled to an extent from the rest of the global markets. 
you know, obviously there's some concerns that the European weakness may transition back into the U.S., but definitely U.S. tends to be, what's the phrase, the best house in a bad neighborhood. We like U.S. stocks. Within U.S. stocks, um, we've definitely ratcheted down some growth exposure. And, you know, right now we're neutral between growth and value. We've been taking profits and growth throughout the year. Fixed income. All right, and, let's, let's stay on there for a second. Yeah. I mean, growth has been, it's been a 10-year market for growth beating value. And some yes. of that is just tech versus financial. So I think yes. about the way people traditionally do growth and value. The Russell indexes, price to book, always tend to be overweight financials, underweight tech. Mm-hmm. How do you think about rotating between growth and value? So rotating between growth and value, generally a lot without a lot, just broadly speaking, a lot of our investments, we just reduce the overall asset class weights. But if you want to take it a step further from a sector perspective, some ways to reduce some of the growth would be to take profits in some of the consumer discretionary areas. Consumer discretionary is a big perspective within growth. Um, you can also look to increase allocations to energy. I think financials has some opportunities, especially if the yield curve does steepen down the road. If the you know if we do have a recession in 2020, you could expect the Fed to, sh- to reduce short-term rates, causing a steepening of a yield curve, which definitely helps financials. You could look at those areas too. So those would be the simple ways, just to from that perspective. I know. But do you we- have a trigger? Like, when, how do you decide which one to be in? A trigger, which one to be in? So. Obviously, there's many factors. We look at valuations, earnings growth, earnings estimates. Um, we look at sales, revenues. So those are the areas, profit margins within the areas. Also, just lo- also longer term perspective, longer term perspectives. So technology, while we we have been reducing our growth exposure, we still like technology as an investment opportunity. You know, I, I use this analogy: technology, given the importance of, of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is like electricity back in the 1890s. It's going to be big. It's going to be huge. We just don't know how big it will be. And you look at all the technology, how it's being used today, artificial intelligence is going to drive a lot. And there's going to be a lot of companies taking advantage of that. So for is that where you just stay with a broad tech sector exposure, or do you try to get more fine-tuned to pick those types of artificial? We would definitely do a broad technology. Yeah. I think you can always look at semiconductors because they've definitely taken on a chin from an industry standpoint, given the trade war in China. But Broad technology, especially around software, especially around automation, may make sense. But you know, I'm not an expert which industry is going to do well with yeah. the technology. But we're big fans of technology. So let's go back to the Fed and and interest rates because we talked about equities a decent yes. bit here in the U.S. And so you think about that equity bond mix. Um, how do you think about you know the where we are on a fixed income allocation from 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 a long term perspective? Yields are still quote unquote low. Um, <laughs> right. How, so where do you for for and you talked about framing up up front that the big the big thing is retirement planning. So people want to take less equity risk and get more safe income. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think about that? So within fixed income, I guess our positioning is we um, we are underweight credit. So credit like corporate bonds, for example. So we're a little bit more biased towards. Um, safe treasury because think about fixed income. Fixed income is is a way you want to collect to clip coupons. Fixed income is also a way to reduce risk within a portfolio. That's what we. That's why we like fixed income. I think a lot of people have been buying fixed income fixed income recently as a way to generate you know light market returns, and we're a little leery about that because some of the spread, some of the um, the spread, and when you say spread, it's the additional compensation an investor needs to, to take the risk of a corporate bond over a treasury. So that's called the credit spread. Credit spreads are extremely narrow today. That means they tend to be a little bit expensive relative to where they've historically traded. So with this in mind, we've reduced our credit exposure. 
in our portfolios, focusing more on traditional treasuries. Um, second of all, what yields, because a 10-year treasury has gone from three and a quarter to down to, I think, 259 as of, as of right now, yields have come down dramatically. But um, we've also wanted to reduce our interest rate sensitivity within our portfolio. So we've reduced our duration to an extent in our portfolio. So duration is interest rate sensitivity. Also, um, outside the U.S., we're underweight foreign bonds because we do think, as you mentioned before, U.S. yields are really strong. And with a 10-year treasury at 260, but then you look at German yields, Japanese yields, those are much lower. So you're seeing some foreign buyers coming into U.S. yields. We're talking with Gene Goldman, Director of Research, Chief Investment Officer at Cetera Investment Management, about his outlook here on, on equities, bonds, uh, sort of rates. It's interesting. So going from... so underweight credit. So is that both investment grade and high yield when you're thinking about that? Just want to be overweight, high quality U.S. treasuries? Uh, or is there part of that credit markets that you still think are, are interesting? I think we, of the two, we would prefer investment grade over high yield. Um, high yield has had a great run. But if, let's say, our thesis plays out and we do have a potential recession in 2020, then high yield could take it on the chin. And that's something that worries us to an extent. But at the same time, though, you don't want to be all in treasuries. You do want diversification because, you know, as, as there's the old phrase, economists are right nine out of every six times. And we could be wrong. And so you want that diversification. I think diversification is the key. You look at the markets the last 10 years, large growth has been the driver, has been the leader. Going forward, though, diversification is going to be much more important, whether it's in equities or within fixed income. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting how little duration compensation you're getting. You talked about, you know, going out the curve when you think about yeah. where the Fed is versus where the 10-year is. It, right. It's like a 20 basis point spread between the 10-year <laughs> and the Fed. And so you say, well, what's what's going on there? Is it mm -hmm. just that to, to be in that long-term bond, you really got to believe we're going to the recession or that the Fed's just going to, they're going to start cutting sooner um, and and you don't think the Fed's hiking at all this year? Yeah, well, let me go back to your first point. So the, the yield curve, it, it's definitely a flat yield curve. You can look, I mean, last time I checked this morning was I think 14 or 15 basis points between a two and a 10. And as your listeners know, that, that's such an important number because that, you know, when the yield curve has inverted, so when the 10 year has gone below the two year, generally speaking, it's a sign of recession is coming. And there's actually a, the Bank of New York Fed has a, has a, um, a tool that's based on this that gives a recession probability. And they're saying a recession within 12 months is a 22% chance, which is the highest it's been since 2009. So that's one concern there. I think part of it is just, if you look at the two-year, the two-year is a good proxy of where the Fed funds rate will be one year from now. And historically speaking, it's, it's, it's been a good proxy. And there's confusion right now because you're seeing conflicting signals of strong economic data, again, the labor market, 50-year low in unemployment, whereas you're seeing weakness in global growth. So the market is trying to figure out where to go. And this is why you know the Fed meeting, you know, I know today is Tuesday, and the Fed meeting, Fed meets today and tomorrow. Uh, but I think this is the Fed's big concern right now is what will they do going forward? And maybe we'll talk about the Fed, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, we've yeah. had the uh, we've had a number of Fed people on the show just at the end after the December meeting. We had Loretta Mester on. Professor Seal gave her very harsh feedback, saying you made a big mistake here. You did not get the tone <laughs> of the market at all. And then they did start quickly walking it back right after yes. that. But and we but you know we've also had President Bullard on, and he has he is one who's very concerned about inverting the curve. You know, mm -hmm. he said we've 
been down this path before and not cared about inverting the curve, we've made that mistake. I've been burned by that twice. I don't want to do it again. And right. it'll be interesting to hear that, you know, debate at the Fed. I mean, it seems like they're going more with this bullard line that we can't invert the curve, that we got to be very sensitive to that. Yeah, there yeah, there is definitely a concern about, about inverting the curve. But I think I think more importantly it's like the Fed policy going forward. So um Powell, you know, Powell back on it was October third and December um eighth, I'm, I'm getting the dates wrong. I think Powell made some mistakes when he came out and he spoke off the cuff. He talked about um he talked about we're far from neutral from interest rate. Markets went to a tizzy. And then in December, he said that, oh, you know, normalization, bank balance sheet normalization will be on autopilot. Markets went into a tizzy. I think he's learned not to speak off the cuff. So I think the Fed meeting in January was very important. If you look at the, the minutes, you know, there's lots of comments about weakening global growth. The concern now is about the dot plot that comes out in March. It comes out in, sorry, in, in today and tomorrow's, in the, tomorrow's meeting. Right now, if you look at the dot plot, the last dot plot, it shows that most likely that there's a f- that the Fed will raise rates twice in 2019. Clearly, the market has changed, and as you had mentioned earlier, Jeremy, that given all the speeches from Fed governors, everyone's discussing patient, you know, wait, look at the data. But for us to actually get a dot plot that represents um, no interest rates for r- r- hikes in 2019, you need seven members to actually reduce their 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 long-term interest rate perspective or the interest rate perspective for this year. I don't know if we're going to see that. I mean, you get three that you need three to reduce their interest rate perspective to just say there's one hike in 2019. I think that may be closer, but I think seven might be a tough. Even though I think of the voting members, I think nine out of ten voting members have used the word patience in pres in speeches recently. But getting seven of the 19 on the Fed board to actually do that might be a little difficult. So we'll see how that goes. But at the end of the day, you know, there's really no inflation and GDP doesn't look great for the first for the first quarter, especially with consumer spending. Like that retail sales number in December, 19-year low in retail sales, that's a bad number. As I mentioned, auto sales, worst number since October 2014. You've got that. You've seen some slowdown in capital spending, which is going to impact first quarter GDP as it impacts you know spending from a business standpoint. So I think there's some concerns there. And for the markets, you know, we've been largely saying the Fed has they took that their concern, like that they were getting overly hawkish, that they sort of took that fear off the table. We'll see if they re-put some fear in, in the market by this week. Um, you know, but the, the major issue has been trade in, in China. So mm-hmm. talk through, you talked about it's largely pricing going well, but wh- why do you think that it will get finalized here? Sure. And, that, and Jeremy, that's a great point. We continue to think that the trade war resolution will, has already been priced into the market. You know, it, you know, it may, let's say if, if it gets announced tomorrow, which I doubt, but let's say it gets announced tomorrow, the markets may rally a little bit on that. But most of the movement has already taken place. You know, again, the, the Dow is, I mean, sorry, the S&P is up about 13, 14% year to date. Most of it's already priced in. Why do we think the trade war will be resolved? Well, there's three main reasons. So number one, you look at the stock market in both the U.S. and China. So in the U.S. last year, the S&P was down four and change, but the fourth quarter, the S&P was down 14.4%, 14.4, 14.5. And that's concerning because President Trump doesn't really, you know, doesn't really, really focus on approval ratings. He focuses on the stock market as a way of how he's doing in terms of his constituents. 
On the Chinese side, the Shanghai index was down about 26% last year, clearly a weakening of the stock market, weakening of confidence. So number one, the stock market. Are both the U.S. and China weakened. Number two, economic data continues to weaken. So you, you look in the U.S. side, we're seeing a lot of bad economic data, especially around manufacturing, especially, I mentioned earlier, consumer confidence, retail sales, small business surveys, housing. So there's some weakness there that's some, a concern. On the Chinese side, you look at the Chinese PMI. P, and let me take a step back, step back. PMI is my favorite indicator to look at. PMI, Purchasing Managers Index, whether it's U.S., global, or China. It's a survey of thousands and thousands of um, survey of thousands and thousands of purchasing managers, and they're asked a question. How's business? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it growing? Is it how's competition? And taking all that data tends to be a good proxy of where market returns are going to be. So China has seen a weakening PMI, and globally we've seen it too. So weakening data in the U.S. and China. The third point, and I know, and I really apologize. This is a long, convoluted answer, but I think um, it's an important point. Is on the U.S. side, President Trump wants to win the 2020 election, and he needs a strong economy to, as his um, as his platform. And this trade war is not helping. On the Chinese side, it's a little bit more, a little bit more complicated. So the Chinese government has been looking to transition their economy from a very manufacturing-based to a very consumer-based economy. This makes sense because they want to be similar to the U.S. I think right now in China, consumer spending is about 45 to 50 percent of overall GDP. In the U.S., we all know it's about 70 percent. So they want to be closer to the U.S. But the problem is that the Chinese had a one-child policy from 1979 to 2015, which is really playing havoc with demographics. Population in China is aging. You also see. Um, you know, for example, birth rate this year, last year, birth rates the lowest since 1961. This is creating a very difficult environment for China from a growth demographics perspective as more and more Chinese are retiring. So you add this poor demographics and couple this with a trade war, it's really exacerbating the issues in China. This is why you're seeing so many olive branches being given from Chinese government to the U.S. So this is why we think it'll be resolved soon. Again, three things, the markets, the uh, economies in both countries and the um, demographics on the Chinese side and the, and the economy. We, we've talked about how this year is the year of the three little pigs in China, and uh, <laughs> that's they're trying to put the stamps is the three pigs to say no more one child. We want you to have three children. Uh, whether or not that will actually work, it will be be interesting to see. But it's, 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 it doesn't happen magically overnight. So <laughs> yeah, no, interesting. We were talking here with Gene Goldman, the, the director of research, chief investment officer at. Terra Investment Management. We talked a lot in the first half of the program about the U.S. and how you position sort of portfolios with with U.S. in mind. Uh, but let's talk now that we're talking China and trade. How do you think about the international segment? You said you like the U.S., but how do you think about what's going on internationally and just where where you're positioning your your portfolios there? Sounds good. And I think the comment I made earlier was, you know, the U.S. is the best house in a bad neighborhood. And I don't mean bad, but, you know, again, think about it. We're in the second longest economic expansion, longest bull market ever. So diversification is key, you know, reducing risk, you know, having not all your eggs in one basket. So with that said, outside the U.S., where are we seeing opportunities? We're starting to see more and more opportunities in developed markets. So like developed Europe, Japan. So let's talk about Europe. Europe has really been facing issues in terms of um, growing populism. So whether you look at Sweden, Italy, France with the yellow vests, um, Spain, Brexit, 
all these issues have been weighed, have been weighing down on the European economy. Even something as simple, the Rhine River. The Rhine River was actually dried up for for a bit of time. This this um last few months so they couldn't actually transport goods down the Rhine River for part of that so this all impacted German growth all impacted European growth the good news out of all this bad news in Europe is that valuations are extremely attractive valuations have come down quite dramatically so you look at the US the US PE ratio on forward earnings let's say it's high 16 maybe almost 17 so the PE ratio which is a great valuation of the markets in Europe, you're looking at maybe eight to nine, hmm. almost pricing in the most dire consequences. And yes, you know the ECB reduced growth for 2019 from 1.7 to 1.1 percent. That's bad news, uh, but has this already been priced in? And we think a lot of this has been priced in. Um, so you see some opportunities there. On the Asia and, side, and that's a broad basket of Europe that you see at single digit P's. It's Yes, that's interesting. I mean, where um, there, that would I, mean, I look at some baskets of you know I track a lot of different indexes for Europe too, and so we have some quality baskets that interestingly, mm-hmm. when I look at like the growth segment yep. of Europe, so call it the tech, the healthcare, the consumers, I see numbers that are actually higher than my same strategy in the U.S. Like mm-hmm. this quality growth segment, the U.S. is cheaper than the Europe one. Yes. So it's it it would now so it would seem to me that maybe. That's a market tilted towards financials, to the energy companies, maybe. I mean, is there any other descriptors of where you see the, the opportunities in Europe? I think you hit the nail right in the head. I think, you know, your firm, Wisdom Tree, it does a great job, especially focused on quality. And I think quality is where you want to go, especially as you're getting your feet wet in a market that's still trying to find direction. And market, you know, so quality makes sense. And I think financials, I think financials in Europe, especially cheap. We've seen the merger on those banks the last couple of days that that's been announced. So you may see more M&A activity. Plus, if um, the thing I think I wanted to mention, too, is that you look at the Citigroup or Citibank, um, Citigroup, I forget, one of the two, City Surprise Index. And the Surprise Index is basically an index that measures the difference in terms of consensus data relative to actual data, the actual data gets better than consensus, the index moves higher. If it gets worse than consensus, it goes down. And this index has been actually moving up, you know, consistently. So even though Europe is in dire consequences in terms of growth and weak growth, data has been surprising the upside. So that's something we're watching. But I think if you're going to get your feet wet in Europe, you know, and outside the U.S., quality-based investments make more sense because it's a way to get your feet wet a little bit more in yield because as we've talked about european yields are so really low right now so jumping in there i know you're from wisdom tree has a lot of great products focus on yield and focus on quality so i think definitely that makes sense if you look at the japanese side and you know i think the japanese market has been struggling for a very long time or the japanese economy and you can look at this data but you're starting to see some improvements you know abenomics has worked it started to work you're starting to see some positives i saw something today that said that um land prices around the three largest cities in japan have actually increased for the first time since 1992. That's good news. You know, land is in, and that land is being bought as a way f- to take advantage of tourism to Japan for increasing retail for retail stores. So there's positives there. Also, I think yesterday overnight you saw on Japanese 20-year bonds, you saw the biggest demand in Japanese 20-year bonds since 2014. So there is some op- op- optimism coming in both Japan and Europe. Again, do you jump in 100% in Europe and Japan? 
I don't think so yet because, again, the data in the U.S. is strong, but it's good to get your feet wet, especially with valuations low. And again, as I mentioned a couple of times now, quality and yield, the safer ways in those countries make more sense. Yeah, they seem to be, in some ways, uh, I mean, there's definitely been, I, I think Japan is one of those hated markets that, yes. you know, from my look at valuation, I think that on some of my indicators, I actually think Japan is a little bit cheaper than Europe. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure everybody has different gauges that, mm-hmm. that they're tracking, different ways of, of looking at it. But now they, they're exposed to the car, you know, the auto, you know, they're very auto centric, some of the big cool. companies right. there. So that they may be hated from that. I mean, do you have a view on other things of, of impacting the Japanese market, so the central banks buying the stocks in the, with their ETF programs and just the monetary policy there. I mean, how, how do you think about that? I think in the last point, monetary policy is key. I think monetary policy, both in the Bank of Japan and the ECB, is definitely very, very accommodative. And I don't see that changing for a very long time. So that's going to continue for a while. So that's definitely going to help both sides. And I think the positives is that there's lack of confidence in Abe, in Abe in terms of how he's doing, but now you're starting to see some tidbits of positive data. So I think that's all going to be great news for Japan. Again, I wouldn't buy, jump in and buy 100% Japan, but I would actually look to get your feet wet, especially mm. outside the U.S., definitely. And, and you're right, too, your other point to like auto sales and especially the ability of Japan to export, especially as you know the dollar you know, the, the dollar has been fairly strong, so Japanese exports into the U.S. should do okay. Yep. Um, so th- it's been a big, when you think about how you put that all together, so you're still overweight the U.S., but you're thinking some opportunities in Europe, a little bit getting getting some more international. How about emerging markets? So the, yeah. the China, last year, EM was a big sell-off on the China news, and China was one of the the big laggards. Uh, a lot of that's whatever didn't work last year is working this year. I and mean, how do you think about where you are now mm-hmm. after some of the, the sort of strong rebound in China and broader, broader EM? Yeah, I think you're you're definitely a great great point. I think EM is an interesting because you talked to a lot of people. EM is the opportunity. You know, I think taking a step back, the big point about EM and just investing in general is active makes much more sense today than passive. And we can talk about this later about risks and so on, but you know, not every emerging market nation is is the same. You know, some are oil oil focused, some are consumer driven, some are more manufacturing driven. So having an active manager to go in and find the right countries to invest in makes sense. I think what's been a huge headwind in an EM investing has been the strong dollar. Because generally speaking, a stronger dollar means an emerging market country has um, they they tend to have dollar based debt and then local currency revenues. So the dollar gets stronger, the cost of their debt increases and their revenues are declining. So everyone will say, talks about this, but and they say, well, it's not as bad as it was back in 1998 with the Thai bot crisis and, and Indonesia, all those other countries. Yes, that's true. It's definitely not as bad as it was back then, but there still is an impact with a strong dollar. So emerging markets, are there opportunities? Yes, we'd be selective, especially the dollar. I can't see the dollar rallying too much more from here. You know, dollar has had a huge appreciation, but with the Fed being on a dovish interest rate policy, and with the fact that you know some economic data is starting to weaken in the U.S., I can see the dollar you know start to you know plateau, maybe slightly come down a little bit, which should hurt help emerging market nations. Would we be? How about our portfolios? Are we big buyers in EM? Not yet, but. We're looking at EM, especially for the long-term opportunities in emerging markets. And the other, oh, and sorry, the other question about 
emerging markets, some naysayers will say that part of emerging markets doing so well was that they were basically an input into the Chinese economy. That's a good point. But I think at the end of the day, emerging markets, given the growth rates that we've seen beyond just the inputs of China, there are definitely opportunities. But there are risks, too. You know, you look at Turkey, you look at Venezuela, you look at a lot of countries where you're seeing political issues. Just, again, be forewarned. If you do jump into emerging markets, there's always going to be issues. That's why active managers make more sense. We're going to drill into more on that. But you said you're not quite going there yet. But So what would be what do you need to see to, to say, yes, it's time to go overweight? I think to go overweight emerging markets, I guess, um, obviously, the dollar definitely showing a sign of weakening um, because, again, the whole dollar-based debt yep. for emerging market nations. Second of all, the trade war being resolved, which we think it will. Um, third of all, looking at some valuations because, you know, EM has, has done well recently, especially, you know, the more aggressive parts of the world have been stronger. You know, year-to-date growth has outperformed value. EM has done really, really well. So we'd love to see stabilization in terms of the dollar and stabilization in terms of the trade war being resolved. And yeah. I think the last news we saw that trade war could, you know, the next meeting is April 1st. Now it could be in June. So we'll mm-hmm. see how that pans out. Yeah, no, I, I look at some of the spreads and, you know, we talked about growth and value in the U.S. and what are the trigger points, you know, to go overweight growth. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, the spread between the growth index and a value index got so narrow that, you know, the faster earnings growth and the growth indexes helped it really power ahead of the value indexes. And there's part of me that sees similar dynamics today in a lot of the emerging markets indexes because you can have very you know, I look at sort of very value-centric indexes that'll be overweight, the banks, the energy companies, some of the mm-hmm. state-owned type companies, or you look at the sort of tech and consumers and in China, non, non-state-owned. Right. And that part, it's like three or four multiple points higher. And so I think about that and the spreads and just the growth rates that are coming in these different sort of the banks and energies versus the tech and consumer. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems to me that that growth premium should be higher. But as we all know, spreads can continue to widen, though. So For it's hard. It's hard to pick a spread. It's hard to exactly. know. It's hard to know. It has, and you got to see the earnings growth actually materialize, and not just in the past. Just exactly. All, all interesting points. So when you think about that. You you said you really think active is needed for EM. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe talk about the trend of active generally. So it's been a ten-year bull market, ten-year mm-hmm. winning time for passive. A big trend towards passive investing. Is that going to continue, or do you think active is going to have a comeback? Great question. I mean, that's like the the million-dollar question. So first of all, as for your listeners, active as we all know, it's active. It's a money manager going in and and using his or her investment tools, research resources to find the best investments within a specific index, a specific country. Whereas passive, on the other hand, is just buying every single security, taking a passive approach to that country or that or that sector. Um, things go in cycles. So if you look historically speaking. Um, Active did well in 2007. Active did well in 2000, 2001, 2002. Um, Passive has done well in like 99. Passive did well in 2003. Passive did well in um, from 2009 to the present time in general. Um, Things go in cycles, and Passive has done really well for the last nine, ten years because when the Fed went into this quantitative easing, zero interest rate policy, it moved everything. It just indiscriminately, everything moved so much higher. Okay. Going forward, though, we really believe active should bounce back. 
active, you know, there's opportunities. First of all, um, from an active standpoint, and actually this takes a step back, I think active should do well, but I think there's really three big paradigm shifts taking place in the markets today. And, you know, Jeremy, you mentioned this before, but you could just buy growth stocks for the last nine years and you've done really well. But we have a shift taking place. First of all, volatility is picking up dramatically. Um, you look at we, we look at simply, you know, people can talk about the VIX, but you ever try to explain to my mom what the VIX is? My mom has no idea what the VIX it's, is. It has to do with option prices and yeah. futures. And well, I actually sat down with my mom I went and I, and I, and I did the old Black Scholes model. I showed everything and showed here's the VIX and I lost her after about three seconds. But a, a great way to look at volatility is just to say plus or minus 1% moves in the S&P 500. So for the last 20 or 30 years, this occurs usually about one out of every four business days. So on average per year, it's about 63 times per year. So one out of every four business days, 25% of the time. 2017, this occurred eight times or 3% of the time. People got into this folk, uh, this low volatility where the sharp ratios of stocks were just screaming because risk was so low, returns were so high. People got used to this environment. 2018, everyone talked about the return of volatility. Volatility definitely did jump, but it was back to this 25%, one out of every four business days. Right now, volatility has been a little bit quiet this year. We think volatility would pick up dramatically. Volatility would be important for an active manager to take advantage to sidestep market concerns, market volatility. Second reason paradigm shift is that, um, to your point, you can't just buy act, you can't just go passive. You know, there are a lot of risks embedded in passive. On the equity side, you know, an investor may say, I'm just, I'm just going to buy the S&P 500. I'm diversified. And the answer is you're not really. You look at the FANG stocks, and we all know the FANG stocks have, you know, have had a huge run. FANG stocks represent about 11% of the S&P 500 in just five names. So you have 500 stocks you're buying, only five names represent 11%. Fixed income side, it's just it's worse. So the Barclays Ag, which is a great proxy of the bond market, the duration today is about six years. So interest rate sensitivity, how sensitive is it to a rise in interest rates? As we all know, bond prices fall and yields rise. Uh, back in 2008, that interest rate sensitivity, that duration was about three years. So you've gone in about 10, 11 years. You've almost doubled your duration even though yields are so low, still low versus historical, historic. And then on the credit spread side, triple Bs have, have gone from, I think, like 23% of Barclays Ag to almost 30%. Triple Bs is the lowest end of investment grade. If we do have a recession in 2020, those securities could sell off, drop in the high yield, change the dynamics of the benchmark. So volatility is picking up. Number two, you can't just go passive. And number three, Going active, especially working with an advisor or being active, allows you to find investment opportunities. Like I love your analogy of growth versus value within um, some emerging market nations and developed nations. Similarly, in the U.S., if you look at the spread of growth, rolling 10-year returns of growth divided by rolling 10 years of value, the last time we've seen this spread so high was back in the 90s. There are values and opportunities in value. So... Again, um, active versus passive, we think active would do well, volatility is picking up, and other investment opportunities. We're talking with Gene Goldman, the Director of Research and Chief Investment Officer at Cetera Investment Management, about his outlook for the markets and sort of passive versus active. So when you think about where, what is there a place in active that you think that is is where you would say, okay, here's a place where I'm just going to use passive vehicles, the betas are are fine. But I really need active in this segment. I mean, the, the the standard is when well, small caps, emerging markets, they're more inefficient. There's more variation. Is that 
somewhat how you view the world? Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at, you know, you know, I think Active Investing 101, and it talks about um, small cap and emerging markets and foreign. But I think all asset classes, you want to be active because, you know, you think about, you think about like a passive index. A lot of times a passive index is focused on what has done well in the past. So for example, um, my example about the Barclays Ag, you know, great index, heavy in triple Bs because triple Bs have done so well. That's or they all... just issue, and bonds is where they it, issue them. Or the, it, it, it makes less sense even in bonds and equities where they're just issuing more bonds. Yep. And it doesn't mean they can pay back the bonds. It just means they're issuing more. So it's not even performance. It's just yeah. who's raising debt. Exactly, and, and yeah. that dictates your weight. Yeah, but 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 let's keep it as simple, like performance. Like whichever is done so well from a performance standpoint, that's a bigger allocation within the index. And now today, with our concerns about spread product and high yield, now you have the bigger risk within that portfolio. So, active managers can see that. And one thing we like about active managers is the ability to navigate. As long as they've done a good job, historically, have shown they can navigate through different market environments. Like we have one manager that. Um, the strategy that, for example, back in 2008, they were heavy in treasuries. And not because they were making a market bet, but because they saw the signs. 2009, 2010, they were heavy within um, spread product. Just done well going through. And then recently, they're heavy back in treasuries and asset-backed securities. We like that, those types of managers, especially when they've done a great job navigating those markets. Same thing with Wisdom Tree. I think your, the way that your firm builds uh, builds ETFs from a factor-based investment analysis is great, like focusing on earnings, focusing on yield. Um, those types of active management solutions are going to do well going forward. So think about the, the 10-year treasury. That's a good proxy for yield. 10-year treasury is at 259. But now, Way, the way your portfolio, especially in your large value securities, focusing on yield, focusing on um, earnings, it's a great way to take advantage of that slice within the large value space. And if you just buy the entire passive index, you're going to get a lot of stuff you don't want to own. So. Very interesting. One of the, the categories, um, it's sort of the diversifying categories as you think about getting later stage, any worldview on alternatives and and things we've talked a lot about equities and bonds but anything you you thought about in that in that world sure we in our portfolio so we 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 build two sets of portfolios strategic and tactical so strategic is a longer term time frame really with an expectation of a 3 to 5 year capital market assumption although we update it once a year um, from a tactical standpoint we view the our portfolios with like a a 1 to 3 quarter look ahead what's going on with the markets. And so there that that's where we'll make more trades like reducing high yield, reducing spread product. And that those tactical portfolios, we've embedded alternative investments in our portfolios. They're great ways to diversify risk to smooth out risk returns. I love the stat from one of your um, another fund company out there that said this. Listen, the S and I'm going to be off a little bit on the dates, but it's it's a good story. The S and P 500, I think, in the last 34 years has been up like 21 of the last 34 years or something like that. But in those years when this S&P 500 was positive, the average intra-year loss is like negative 13%. So we've been in an upward rising market, but we've had a very volatile upward rising market where you have some downside. You do have some peak to trough declines. Alternative investments, and I do apologize for your listeners. I, the, I don't have the exact data, but it's, it's approximately what the data is. Um, the peak to trough uh, uh, sharp declines in a portfolio, having alternatives is a way to sort of let some of your investments zig while the rest of your investments are zagging. So in our portfolios today, what we're using, we're using um, commodities. 
Okay, Kamai's have been the forgotten asset class for a long time. Ten years dead. Dead money. But we like we like commodities right now, especially an active manager in commodities. We like commodities. We also use um, a long short fund. So a long short fund, both buying long securities and shorting some of their least favorite names. We also like. Real global real estate is a way to diversify, get some yield. It's a, a great alternative. And then we're also using a global macro fund, using signals to find investment opportunities out there. So you're just having, and, it, and it's a very small portion of our portfolio, but it allows you to reduce some of that, that intra-year loss that can occur in, in investing. So we've talked uh, a lot of big picture views on across the, the global markets. Maybe sort of stepping back towards, as you think about this, the type of people that you're trying to attract to Cetera and, and sort of the value added that your firm's offering, maybe sort of coming back to high level things that we haven't covered yet. Just what, where, what, anything that you want to talk about? From a, from an investor, st- a client standpoint or a type of Either advisor? One. Sure. <laughs> Just open-ended question. Yeah. Um, we, our advisors tend to be advisors who have been in the business for a very, very long time. I think the beauty about the independent space is that it allows our advisors to be, you know, simply independent, allows them to affiliate with a large organization like our firm to navigate market uncertainty. You know, you, th- you think about this, you think about the fourth quarter, the S&P was down 14 and change, as, as I mentioned, okay? When there's market dislocations like that, the ability, um, that's when you tend to see clients or prospects or investors shift or get, or leave leave their advisors and you know a lot of our advisors saw you know it's it's a it's a way for an advisor to be very proactive in the markets but you, you see you see a lot of advisors over the last couple quarters given the market weakness clients are emailing calling asking a ton of questions on what's going on with the market what should i do should i rebalance give me some questions and perspectives and it's very difficult for an advisor to be very proactive in an environment like that the good news when advisors are affiliated with Cetera, we work for a very large organization 250 billion in aua 7700 advisors um I think 1,400 um, employees all over the country, all working for one goal to help our advisors help their clients. So it allows our advisors to be more proactive by giving them the resources and tools to navigate around uncertainty. That's a very good closing thought. Thank you for joining us here in our New York studio. We'll be talking with Gene Goldman, Director of Research, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Cetera Investment Management. Thanks for thanks for coming, Gene. Jeremy, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Behind the Markets. Thanks to our New York producer, Emily Anton, and this is our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Wisdom Tree ETFs trade transaction-free via the Cetera Financial Group platform, and Wisdom Tree Asset Management pays Cetera compensation for this. Cetera and Wisdom Tree are separate and unaffiliated entities. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus, available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Wisdom Tree ETS are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.